Welcome everyone to our afternoon session. And as Dimitri just introduced, we are going to have a very exciting session. We are going to hear from entrepreneur, from CFO, from VP, from the very uh, you know practitioners of energy policy and technology and uh, all the frontier topics around it. And we've been working very hard to have you know the people with the right experience to come and share their knowledge with us. So. I personally will be very, very excited to hear from everyone. And uh, to, I will be with you for the moderation for the whole afternoon. And uh, for that, I will give a very brief introduction of myself. I'm currently a board member leading the knowledge sharing practice at ES Europe. I'm also a, uh, a full-time quantitative researcher at uh, BlackRock. And uh, while in the meantime, I'm finishing my PhD at in uh, energy and environmental engineering at Imperial College. So I'm very, very interested and looking forward to all the topic talks this afternoon. And to start off, we're gonna have a very exciting panel discussion. And for this panel discussion, our topic is gonna be focused on one of the hottest topic within the world of the energy and climate, which is climate sustainable finance. And for this panel, we have three guests. And uh, let me just, uh, spend a few minutes to walk you through their profile. Now we have um, Alba, Rebecca, and Valentina. Alba is the um, co-founder and head of growth and chief climate officer at SEEDS. And uh, Rebecca is the uh, director of sustainable finance at South Pole. And Rebecca has had 20 years of uh, finance experience in different institutions. And uh, finally, we would also have Valentina. Valentina is currently an associate in the supply chain emissions initiative within climate intelligence program. And first off, I'd like to invite Alba to give a more detailed introduction of yourself and perhaps what you do in your work and also you know, what exactly is sustainable finance from your perspective. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Ronnie, for the introduction and thank you all the team of uh, Yes Europe for organizing this event. I'm very excited about it, especially sharing this discussion with Rebecca and Valentina. So I hope you find it interesting. Um, I will give you a very brief overview about myself so that you know who I am and um, yeah, what I'm doing here. So uh, let's start. Uh, yes, my name is Alba Forens. I am from Barcelona and my background is in industrial technology engineering. I also have a double master's degrees in uh, renewable energy. And during my studies, I've been abroad a lot. I did an exchange in the University of Cambridge. Then I was doing an Erasmus in Italy, in Bologna. And then I spent the last year of my master's in Stockholm, Sweden, where I uh, was studying at KTH, the Royal Institute of Technology. And well, overall, this has been a very, it's been a journey <laughs> and it's very, it's been very enriching because it gave me the chance to really embrace change, understand other cultures and also learn other languages. So overall, it was a great experience. Um, Going on to my professional background, I have uh, experience as an energy consultant. I was uh, working in a small company called Edenway, where I engineered projects which are related with the mobility, circular economy, and energy efficiency. 
This really gave me great insights about everything going on in the industry. And after that, I co-founded my own company. Uh, it's called Seeds Renewables. Probably you do not know about it because uh, we, are, we are still small. But basically, we are a climate fintech platform through which you can invest in renewable energy projects through crowdfunding. So that's what uh, the company is about. Uh, we are trying to shift the role of the public from neutral bystanders to active stakeholders and to fuel the energy transition. My role inside of the company, as Ronnie said before, I am head of growth. Uh, to shed some light on that because the name is not very self-explanatory. I basically source the renewable energy project pipeline, so the projects in which uh, users are going to be investing in. And then I'm also leading the technical due diligence. This means that I make sure that the projects are both technically feasible and obviously economically viable for us to invest in. And then as chief climate officer, what I'm doing is quantifying, reducing and offsetting or removing the emissions, unavoidable emissions in case of offsetting and removing of the company to be carbon neutral on a yearly basis. For us, that is very, very important. And then I would also uh, like to end my introduction with uh, some personal background as well. I entered the sustainability space out of passion and in my free time, I love to organize and participate in volunteering events related with um, both climate justice and uh, gender equality. So, for example, I, I love to participate in many workshops, events, and I also uh, organize some beach cleanups, day cleanups, uh, etc. So <laughs> that's kind of uh, in my fields of interest. And then before uh, we move on to uh, Rebecca's introduction, I also wanted to give you like the definition of what sustainable finance is and what sustainable finance actually means to me so basically well i guess we're all familiar with the definition but it's just referring to the process of taking environmental social and governments considerations that that is uh, insured esg into into account when we make investment decisions so that would be what sustainable finance is um, according to the, the International Renewable Energy Agency, there is a huge financing gap. This means that to, in order to uh, stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, we need to scale up the investments up to 1.1 trillion US dollars per year between 2021 and 2050 over the plant energy scenario. This is, uh, there's a huge potential there. And that's why I think sustainable finance is that important. And that's actually one of our goals at SEEDS. What we want to do is cover a portion of that energy financing gap um, by making every transaction an investment in, in climate action. So, well, that's why this topic today is so important and it will be more and more important over the upcoming years. So I hope our experience can be useful for you and that you find this interesting. Thank you, Eva, very much. And now we can move on to Rebecca. Great, thank you. Hopefully you can hear me well. We can hear you well, but yeah, it's, it's very good. Go okay, ahead. good. Thank you. And uh, delighted to be here today. Um, thank you so much for the invitation and happy to, to be with my fellow panelists too and listen to them um, with lots of knowledge um, I'm sure they'll be sharing. Um, so a bit about me. Uh, my name is uh, Rebecca Self. 
I am originally from the UK, um, but I'm based in the Netherlands, uh, close to Amsterdam. Um, I have worked very internationally too. Um, I have uh, close to 20 years of experience uh, in the financial industry, and 10 of those years were at HSBC. Uh, was the CFO of Sustainable Finance, um, which meant I had a balance sheet, an income statement, a business that I was responsible for. Um, and maybe for, for background, how I ended up there very briefly, um, I would usually describe it that sustainability found me rather than I found it. And post-financial crisis, this was about 10 years into my career, I really had a very big wake-up moment about the financial industry, about banking, and about the role that the industry was playing in society. And so at this point, I started to pivot my career towards regulations, towards governance, so much more on the G of ESG, Environment Social Governance. Um, and then I became really interested in the E and the S, um, and this was a relatively small part of my role at that at that time, um, about eight, nine years ago. And um, gradually it became bigger and bigger. I started studying in my spare time. I did a master's in my spare time at the University of Cambridge um, until about five years ago, it was a full-time job. Um, and, and I was asked uh, to work on various different disclosures and take over um, this area uh, for the bank. So it's definitely been a journey. Um, I was uh, nodding away as Alba was talking. I, I certainly um, noticed that myself. And again, back eight years ago, no one was that interested in this topic, I'll be honest. Lots of colleagues when I was at the bank thought I was completely crazy. Um, they said, this is a career limiting move. No one's interested. It's nothing to do with finance. Why are you talking to us about this topic? And I'm blown away. There's an incredible amount of momentum now. Um, and for those of you who are familiar with the tabloid newspaper, The Sun in the UK, um, yesterday in The Sun, there was an article about um, Prince Harry and Meghan and about some investing and uh, new roles they have in impact investing. And they're actually uh, it was sort of going a, little, a bit down a greenwash line. This particular article it was quite sensationalist. But I was just blown away. I thought never did I think I would ever read this in that kind of paper. Um, so just incredible to see the amount of momentum around this topic. Um, I think when I think about what this topic means to me, um, it's about integrating those environment, social decisions into financing, lending, investing and so on. And really about shifting to the long term. I think traditionally finance has been very short term in nature, huge amounts of value paid to nanoseconds with the case of high frequency trading. And that's almost the opposite of what sustainable finance is to me. It's really looking at these decisions and looking at what they mean in 10, 20, 30 years. What are the negative externalities around decisions where finance and capital is put? So looking in a much more holistic way. And two, so very brief comments, um, again, before I finish up the intro. Um, I think number one, there is a role for regulation in this space as well. So um, for sure, the financial sector is a key uh, lever, um, but also having that policy environment. And I think we all remember well what happened 
when the financial sector was let uh, was allowed to regulate itself. So let's just keep that in mind from sort of 10, 10 or so years ago. Um, and the second is, again, bringing in that long term, there's one of the Greek proverbs that a society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they'll never sit in. And for me, again, this is something that I think about with sustainable finance. It's about the decisions that we make today with lending and investing. But the outcome might be very far in the future. And it's thinking through what those potential outcomes might be and being very um, thoughtful about that with those lending and investing decisions that we make today. Um, so I'll pause there. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca, for that insightful introduction. And now can we move on to Valentina? Sure, thank you. And thank you everyone for, uh, for being here today with us. And I'm very happy to, be, to have been invited to this event and very happy to uh, share and exchange some knowledge with my fellow panelists. My name is Valentina. I am currently um, an associate in the Supply Chain Emissions Initiative within the Climate Intelligence Program at RMI, former Rocky Mountain Institute. Uh, we are a nonprofit um, that works to uh, transform the global energy system to secure a, a global um, a, a net a, a zero carbon future for all. So uh, that's the mission of the uh, nonprofit. And I joined it in in March. So um, it's been it's been a very interesting path so far, and it really shaped my uh, my understanding of this field as well in a different way. So before. I get to that. I'd like to give you a little bit of, um, of a, an overview of my background. I studied economics and business administration in my bachelor's studies, and then proceeded with a master's degree in international development and international affairs. Uh, that stemmed from the fact that I had always been interested in sustainability. Uh, and of course, the idea was to try and find the, you know, the intersection between economics and business administration and sustainability. So that's what uh, that master's represented for me. And I have to say um, my, interest in, my interest in economics and sustainable finance um, grew and take, took shape uh, thanks to mainly my first experience at the, uh, at the UN, at the United Nations, inside the Sustainable Stock Exchanges Initiative. I was a research and communications assistant there. And um, that experience gave me a first uh, understanding, a first uh, point of, of touch with the sustainable finance industry. I got to, uh, to learn a lot about how stock exchanges were trying and are trying to, to, uh, to make, um, to shift, as Rebecca was saying, the mindset from a very short-term um, kind of propension to a more long-term uh, mindset to generate a positive um, Social, environmental, social and environmental impacts with the investment decisions that these stock exchanges and companies are making. My understanding of sustainable finance also um, was very enriched through a following experience at ETH. I was a research assistant inside the energy politics group. There we analyzed over 130 initiatives, sustainable finance initiatives. We looked at the system trying to understand how these initiatives were shaping their theory of change. So we developed a framework and then analyzed uh, and assessed the sustainable finance initiatives. Uh, we looked at those 
starting from two considerations, from two axes. On one, on one axis, we had uh, risk versus value. And on the other one, we had real economy versus secondary markets. And it was, it really stood out to me how many of these sustainable finance initiatives were uh, mainly approaching the, the issues they were tackling from a risk perspective and also mainly dealing uh, on the issues from a secondary market, financial market perspective. So never really you know, acting in the real economy. What I like about RMI and the work I do now is that we propose market-based solutions. So we really work to transform uh, industrial supply chains and to help companies reduce their, uh, their emissions along the supply chains. So my experience in the past also was about sustainability reporting. Uh, that was thanks to an experience at WBCSD, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development where I participated in the Reporting Matters project. And there I really uh, started to understand how sustainability reporting is a very fragmented space and sustainability disclosures uh, can become really complicated. So that's also when I realized the importance of data and robust disclosures. Coming to, uh, that was a little bit of my uh, professional background and academic background, coming to what sustainable, sustainable finance means to me now. As I was saying, uh, my understanding really changed in the past couple of years. Uh, I would say for me, sustainable finance is, uh, you know, any financial transaction or product that generates positive environmental or social uh, or positive social impact. It's about creating social inclusion and environmental benefits through finance and the financial system. It is about directing uh, the financial tools we have in place towards investments that promote decarbonization, direct decarbonization. And you know, this kind of finance for me has the power to change procurement practices in industries, especially the hard to abate industries, but also to redirect purchasing power of uh, consumers. So to conclude, I would say that when we talk about sustainable finance, we could be speaking you know, about uh, a financial product, so like green bonds or ESG funds and indices, but also about microcredits to smaller medium enterprises in the global south. And we're also talking about sustainable finance when we talk about banks and financial institutions committing to net zero targets, as well as companies committing to net zero targets. So yeah, it's a really broad field and I'm happy to dive in, into the discussion, uh, bringing you know, different perspectives to the table. Thank you, Valentina, and thank you all for sharing how sustainability has found you, where you have found sustainability. And given your very diverse background, I have one question that's very attractive to me, perhaps to all the audience as well. Uh, what exactly you know, is the type of uh, sustainable finance that we would want? for the next decades, you know, to reach the goal of net zero or for energy transition. And more importantly, how are different stakeholders, the banks, the stock exchange, the entrepreneurs are doing to realize this goal? So I'd like to kick off this question with Elba. Sure. Um, well, if you want, I can give you a bit of the startup perspective because that's where I'm, that's where I'm coming from. So what we need 
well, this is a bit related with what Valentina was saying before. Sustainable finance is not only about invest investing directly or only about banks. It's a very, very broad topic. And that's why I want to um, center it to now to, to startups. And what is very important to me, for example, is to be able to allow everyone to participate in this discussion and to be able to make everyday people like us, for example, as individuals also to take part in this transition. So that's why um, kind of tied to what I'm doing at Seeds is um, we want to democratize, decentralize and incentivize this energy transition. So for me, it is important that uh, this uh, narrative does, doesn't only stay in the company, bank level, etc., but also allows uh, individuals to to invest and to to be to be able to participate in this in this transition. It is complicated because um, starting to invest is uh, is hard. You need to you need to uh, do a lot of make a lot of research and to understand well what what you're getting yourself into. But yeah, I think that it is important that there's, I mean, there's a lot of initiatives related to this, but it is important that everyone is allowed to participate. And that's why I, I want to highlight um, this initiatives. The longer that we go without making changes to the economic system today, the more radical and more extreme the change will be when we ultimately get there. Um, because uh, simply a lot of the negative impacts around climate change will be baked in. So we have a much more serious problem to tackle if nothing's done. Um, and then just taking that point on stakeholders. So with some of these new visions of capitalism, with donor economics, stakeholders featuring and these different um, areas. Um, and some of that is around um, talking to the different stakeholders for a business. Um, so, for example, the regulators, customers, employees, and so on. Um, but also thinking about the stakeholders that represent different areas. So, one question I've often posed myself is, who's the stakeholder for the planet? Who is it that represents that? And it's probably a whole series of community groups and non-profits and all sorts of other people. But um, definitely stakeholders, different views, uh, different perspectives, really important. Um, but it's just worth thinking through with a framework who exactly those those people are um, for, uh, for a particular business in their context. Thank you. Thank that, you. Thank you. That is really insightful. And uh, Valentina, what, what's your take? Yeah, so I really agree with what Rebecca just said. I think it's hard to say um, who is really, you know, representing the planet, who is the stakeholder for the planet. I think different uh, actors in the field might have different, um, you know, perspectives and come into play with a different vision and different motivations. But I think what is important, what really matters is that ultimately we mobilize uh, finance to meet the decarbonization targets that we have set for ourselves. Uh, ourselves. So I think, um, we need banks to evaluate their portfolios uh, for them to be climate aligned. We need companies to set climate targets that are trackable and achievable. Uh, so in general, we say we need big financial players to mobilize and set standards that they can you know, practic practically achieve and monitor against, uh, both on the equity and on the lending side. Um, of course, 
the main issue with this is data and the, the presence and the availability of comparable, transparent and um, reliable data. That is um, what we what I notice on a on a daily basis at work. And um, I would say like a good example of actors mobilizing in this field is um, is given by the Poseidon principles. It's a set of principles uh, that banks committed to. It's a framework for uh, evaluating um, ship finance portfolios. So, um, you know, I would say in that case, it's a great commitment. It's a very good commitment uh, by banks, which evaluate the carbon intensity of their portfolios and establish whether they are climate aligned or not. And then they disclose on those uh, portfolios and of course um, act in consequence, like as a consequence they act uh, and probably divest or change the interest rates of the, of the lending they're giving out. So, I think that is the sustainable finance we need, um, but of course we need we need it to be backed up by very strong data, comparable data that is um, reliable and allows us to es establish a baseline for uh, keeping track of the progress against climate targets that companies and banks set for themselves. And so, yeah, I think the challenge is really in bringing up this reliable data and also establish the pathways and metrics to then evaluate um, the finance that is mobilized uh, for climate targets. Valentina, you touched on a very interesting point, which is data and probably reliability of the data. And like we've heard about reports that some of the green bonds, for example, uh, issued by maybe oil companies that has been used to you know, invest in projects that's not exactly green. And um, so there's like being a rising, you know, um, awareness to verify or to confirm that the money or the data you claim to be green is actually green. So what kind of, you know, gap is there and um, what can we do, you know, to facilitate this verification process to make sure that wherever they claim it's sustainable finance, it's actually sustainable and green. And I want to start this question uh, with Valentina. Yeah, sure. That is a, an excellent question. I think um, we need to work with industries and companies directly to uh, to source primary data because we cannot allow to um, you know proceed with uh, industry averages or emission factors that are based on industry averages. We need to start gathering and working with. Um, with primary data, asset or product level data. That is what really we advocate for uh, at uh, Climate Intelligence. And we are working with, um, we, we already have some ongoing pilots to, uh, to source that primary data. So we also advocate for um, a very a harmonized uh, carbon reporting, carbon, uh, carbon accounting framework. That is what Comet does. Uh, that's the coalition on emission on material emissions transparency. Uh, we advocate for harmonized for a harmonized framework that builds on the GHG protocol, but that gives reliable sector-specific guidance because what we realize is that companies do not have um, guidance when it comes to reporting their emissions, especially when it comes to scope three emissions because those are the most difficult to, to report and, and keep track of. So, 
I think this has become really evident in the in the recent in recent months. Uh, I remember reading a, an article um, on a study that was conducted by the Boston Consulting Group. It found that over ninety percent of uh, one thousand two hundred uh, companies assessed reported their emissions wrong, and over half acknowledge an error rate of forty percent. So. That's that really makes evident makes evident that we we don't have the right data at the moment. Uh, it's really a very a very complicated field. Uh, it's difficult for companies to report and to keep track of their emissions, and so we need to to look at data differently to um, work towards harmonized frameworks uh, that you know with the hope that they will become mandated. So. Um, that policy and regulators will mandate those climate disclosures in a harmonized way so that companies have a more clear guidance on how to report those emissions and hopefully the, these errors are uh, reduced over time and eliminated eventually. Thank you, Valentina. And before my, I pass this same question to Alba, I just like to remind our audience here that feel free to pose your question in the chat box or see it later. We are going to have an openness stage to the audience for the questions as well. And now, Alba, what is your take on this question? Yeah, I mean, it is a it is a very interesting topic indeed. The the statistics that Valentina shared about the Boston Consulting Group are kind of scary. I mean, if you think about it, ninety percent is a lot. Like um, that means we, there's a lot of room for improvement there. Um, my opinion is very aligned with Valentina's. Actually, I think that it is very very important to be able to to man like in order to be able to actually uh, improve and to manage all of this. We need measurements. We need to we need to have real data that we can we can base ourselves upon and then just act on it. So um, it is very important to really standardize um, what, to have a framework so that companies can, can base themselves on this. So for example, if we look into um, ESG, for example, in my opinion, the main problem is that because we are lacking these standards and um, these regulations, it's very hard for us to see if we're actually doing a good job or not. So an example would be, for example, um, ESG indexes are, are based um, based on exclusion many times. So that means like uh, you say like, okay, in this portfolio, we do not want companies that are, um, that are doing this and that, for example, weapons. Um, then uh, you can also uh, follow a single theme um, way of building those indexes. So that means like, okay, I will only focus on renewable energy. Or you can set uh, the best in class criteria, would, would actually, which would actually mean like you're the best in comparison to your competitors. But that could be, you could be an oil company, which is just doing better than the rest of them. So seeing there's this uh, way of handling these indexes is kind of scary as well. So it really, it is very, um, arbitrary and uh, it's very hard for you to know as an investor if this is actually complying with your standards. So that's why I think that having a more regulated framework would allow people to trust more and to know where their money is actually going. So 
I still think that uh, we are we are starting with this, and obviously, you know, like it takes some time for us to be able to to set those standards. It is definitely we're taking steps towards the right direction, but I just think that those um, those standards need to be there uh, in order to make it more trustworthy for all of us to invest. So, yeah, I think that there is a, a huge need on that as well. Thank you, Alba. And Rebecca, how, how do you think we can close this gap? Yeah, thank you. And again, I'm, I'm a firm believer, um, as with Alba and Valentina, around the importance of this data. So we need transparency. We need to make evidence-based decisions. Um, and for example, that means carbon emissions associated with companies, with investment portfolios, um, the diversity of employees at particular companies. Um, so lots and lots of different data types um, with, in this context, which are needed. And it's very hard, for example, to set a CO2 price for, for a company if you're setting an internal price, if you don't know what your emissions are. You can't really do that. So this data really is a building block. Um, I think one point I would say is it's important not to let perfection be the enemy of the good. So again, just sort of picking up on, on what was said, is it better to be sort of 60% correct and maybe not have a complete scope of carbon emissions for a business, but to get started or rather wait for 100% of the scope and for you know, way more precise data, but that takes five years. And I would argue it's better to just get started and it's not gonna be perfect in the first instance. That can be um, noted in footnotes, it can be noted in basis of preparation that sit alongside disclosures. But I do think there's a real value in getting started even though that data may not be perfect because um, I have come across many times where data is used as a bit of an excuse to delay action. And you can spend years and years and years and years and years waiting for perfect data and not do anything. So I, I, my personal take is, is, is better to start and acknowledge that it might not be perfect in the first instance. Um, and that also brings me on to the role of accountants. Um, and I'm a chartered accountant by background, uh, work with financial institutions and very often CFOs. And what do we do with financial data? What do we do where it's unreliable or we're unsure? We have auditors and we have accountants who come in and are sure and accounting teams. And there's various books, Accountants Save the Planet. And I would love personally for accountants to to be a bit more ambitious in this space. You know, I think there's a real role that can be played there around assuring the credibility, the rigor of this data, verifying um, use of basis of prep and accounting techniques that we use every single day in financial accounting. Why can't we apply the same thing to, to ESG and to sustainability? That, um, I want to ask a very quick follow-up question on that. You know. I've seen, you know, some uh, emission accounting from say EY or other companies as well. But uh, what, what's the, uh, you know, uh, the business opportunities that's created out of this? Because this is, this is a huge gap to account for the emissions. And um, what's the 
business opportunity and who do you think you know is like capturing this at the moment Rebecca yeah I think it's a bit of a mix today and also the I mean there are lots of standards around IFRS international accounting standards what's assurance limited assurance audit all different types but again this is my personal take I'm not quite sure the existing standards are fit for purpose for ESG and for these other non-financial metrics so I think firstly there's um there's business opportunities around doing that work <laughs> for sure training I think is another because I think there's a whole lot of upskilling that needs to happen within the accounting industry um so I spend quite a lot of my time um doing awareness raising and talking to colleagues talking to other accountants I'm quite involved in my accounting institute on that too um so I think the, there's the verifying itself there's the training and upskilling there's the standards as well and thinking through how these standards may change in the future the accounting standards um so lots of opportunities but it's it's going to be lots of different different groups I think looking at different um lenses on this topic thank you Rebecca and uh, that's a lot of me asking the question and I would also like to open the stage to our audience any question you want to ask around the topic of sustainable finance you can just uh, open your mic and uh, ask the question directly if you have one While we wait uh, until uh, um, people start asking questions, I just wanted to go back to what Rebecca said about um, about perfection not being in the way of progress. And I just wanted to say I completely agree with that because um, I sometimes have the feeling as well that uh, just looking for that perfection is is the excuse of not moving forward. So that's why, like I said before, that uh, we have to acknowledge that this is that we're going towards uh, that we that we're moving towards the right direction, and that we are taking very significant steps because we're coming from um, we're coming from a place where profit really uh, was was taken as the most important thing, and then um, environment social issues, governance, we're not, uh, we're not part of the discussion. So we've come a long way. But um, yeah, just to acknowledge that the system right now is not perfect, but that there's room for improvement, but still that we should not um, use that as an excuse not to not to continue doing what we do. So that's, I think that was a very, very good point from from Rebecca. Sure, thank you. Uh, Valentina, do you want to add something as well? Yes, thanks. That would be great. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with uh, what Alba just said and also with Rebecca. I think we're already at a stage where data is, you know, not perfect, um, but companies are working on it. And um, that's where the business opportunity, I think, will come from. So I think there's really a chance for leading corporates here to to lead the rest of the market to invest in decarbonization efforts along their supply chains to set ambitious goals. Um, so I'm thinking, for example, of ArcelorMittal, the steel producer. Um, they recently produced, um, it was not really they produced green steel, but they sold some uh, bundle certificates based on avoided emissions from some efficiency projects and they immediately went sold out. So um, there was a very good demand signal from the market there. And 
uh, there is for sure, I believe, um, scope for um, uh, more efforts in, you know, in direct green steel production. And along the same lines, I would say there is a, there is a big, big business opportunity for other leading companies uh, setting ambitious goals. Uh, I'm thinking of Volvo setting uh, scope three targets for 2050. It's something that's not common, but you know, they're, they have set those ambitious goals. goals. They're gonna work on those. They're going to refine the data they have available. They're going to create an ecosystem to make those uh, that data better and better. And I think the, the aim should be a data reduction effort. So uh, closing the gap on quality data and um, strive for uh, more and more reliable data, transparent data and um, that's why I believe that standardization and harmonization uh, would be essential tools because they allow us to take the subjectivity out of, you know, climate disclosures and, and um, yeah, and just uh, reporting of uh, emissions. Thank you, Valentina. And uh, I think there's a question from the audience, which is kind of like an expansion for the challenge that we are facing in data. What are the other, you know, main barriers or challenges to drive investment towards sustainability? And uh, Rebecca, can I open up on this question? Yeah, happy to. And um, maybe two broad comments. Um, I think the free market is really great at solving problems. So if there's a clear problem and there are opportunities, commercial opportunities, the free market is very good at filling those gaps. But Today, um, there's no CO2 price, for example, there's no carbon tax. Um, and quite often, there's a perception that sustainability is a cost. And it can, it can sometimes cost more. So it means that for the market to solve that opportunity is quite challenging. So I think one very simple, um, well, I say simple. One one example is is simply to have carbon taxing and carbon pricing. And I think then if we had we the planet had that at an appropriate amount or certain countries did as they do now and it's increasing very quickly, the market would respond to that and investment would drive into even more investment would drive into some of those low carbon or transitioning um, areas. So I think there's something in the market conditions and having the right market conditions um, to really accelerate and scale sustainable finance. And I think there's a bit of a gap in, in those conditions where we are today. The simple one being CO2 pricing. Um, and then sort of a second point um, is, and it sort of picks up on, on some of what was spoken earlier, um, the market isn't sort of moral it doesn't have particular values of its own um it's sort of looking for those opportunities and gaps and commercial opportunities so i think there's a question probably for all of the people that participate in a, a buying products and participating in in the economic system you know what is the values associated with this economic system what values do we want to live in or have with the system which we're participating in and i don't think the market's going to solve that on its own and data isn't going to solve it on its own and sustainability frameworks aren't going to solve that on its own. It's really a much bigger question around what type of economic system do we want and what values um, are important to us and the planet in the future. 
So I think that is a, a much bigger, more forward-looking question. The market's not going to solve that, in my view, on their own, on its own. Um, that's not its role. Um, so it's really for the ecosystem around finance to think that through. I agree. Thanks. Thank you, Rebecca. In the short term, the market mechanism could provide the right incentive, and in the long term, it's probably we have to rethink how we value these things. Uh, and now, Alba, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think that having regulations or like uh, policies in place, such as, for example, carbon tax, can really incentivize um, companies to 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 move towards impact, like um, to move towards a position where the environment, for example, is more important than profit, just because they will be very tied and linked together. And if we think about it in a way like um, having uh, ESG values, for example, also means that a company is more efficient at what they do. Because with less uh, inputs, you can achieve more outputs if we put it in, in a way, you know, like for example, in the environmental concerns, that's where I'm coming from. That's kind of my field. I just see that doing the same thing with less resources is showing that a company is much more efficient at what they do. So we're lucky because I think that uh, profitability will be very tight uh, with uh, sustainability. So that will make the market move towards this, just because it will it will be profitable um, to to take sustainability into consideration uh, when looking into finance. So I just think that uh, we need yeah more regulations in place or more policies which which make this um, not a choice but an obligation. And really, we are at a point where um, we don't have any other option. We either go for this or, um, <laughs> especially from an environmental perspective, um, things cannot proceed. So I, I'm just very hopeful because I have the feeling that in the end we will just, uh, there's a trend towards this direction, but um, there won't be an option to do anything else. Thank you, Alba. And uh, Valentina? Yeah. Uh... I really liked uh, Rebecca's uh, answer to this question. I agree, and I am also hoping that you know the, the right ecosystem is uh, is arising, and that we are um, setting the tools that we need to get to that ecosystem in the short future, in the short term uh, future. So um, I think going back to the question, I think. Um, cost is a is a huge barrier to driving uh, investment in sustainability there are usually a uh, very high uh, initial capital uh, costs which not all uh, investors and um, companies can bear so that's for sure um, an obstacle there and also a big element of risk which uh, can prevent investment uh, towards uh, decarbonization uh, projects i think that's where uh, public-private partnerships can um, help overcome some of these obstacles. And uh, of course, with the help of regulation and policy, as Alba said. And I think uh, going back to the point of, um, you know, the business opportunity that arises there, I think here there's the there's the big uh, business opportunity for leading corporates that have the tools in place to invest, that have the resources to invest in these uh, most ambitious projects. I think they can really develop proof of concept for other 
um, corporates and other actors in, in the market to follow. Uh, they can, uh, as we say, create a demand signal for, uh, for climate differentiated products. So for products that we can differentiate based on uh, their climate uh, and their environmental attributes. So, you know, I think it will be a matter of synergies on one side, creating the demand signal from corporates and on the other side uh, having, um, so of course the demand signal would also change procurement practices. And on the other side, we would have uh, consumers and customers um, proving that these um, products are preferred in the market. So hopefully it will be a synergy of procurement practices and consumer preferences that will allow for this ecosystem to be ultimately created and in to be in place. Thank you for all these insightful sharing. And we have more questions from the audience. One is from Sankar. And the question is, do you think there are gaps between the technical and economic vectors of the sustainable industry? And um, who'd like to go with this question first? Maybe I can take a stab if I understand the question correctly. Um, I think this could go back to what I was mentioning earlier. Uh, in a way, there are actors in the, in the market that have the economic tools in place or the resources in place to invest, but probably they, they don't have the technical tools available. So there could be a gap in, in the technical solutions available and the resources in place to invest in those solutions. Uh, but also, I think in most of the cases, we have the technical solutions in place, but we don't have the resources to invest in them. So as I was saying earlier, I think uh, what could bridge this gap is uh, public-private partnerships uh, supported by governments, um, I know in the US, for example, there are, there are uh, manufacturing institutes which promote and invest in this kind of partnerships. So, you know, where there are not the resources in place to, to develop these technologies, these institutes can help, um, can help develop those through uh, research and development that probably um, the public or the private sectors alone could not come up with. So I think collaboration uh, is for sure one of the keys to bridging this gap. Thank you, Valentina. And uh, Rebecca, do you want to comment? Yeah, I may, I may just briefly. Um, I think one gap that I see, again, I mentioned it earlier, is around the, the education piece. And very often, um, there'll be people in the financial industry, um, mainly at, at very large organizations who say things to me like i really want to work on climate change esg it's really important to me my organization my investment portfolio um but i don't want to change anything and i sort of think okay <laughs> this isn't gonna work it's there's because it does require change and this is a huge topic so it's great, there's lots of momentum, people are interested, lots of traditional organizations, but it will require change. And I think the scale and the extent of that change, the extent of the problem, frankly, of where we are today, particularly on climate, I think many people just aren't so aware. Um, so I do think there's a whole sort of education upskilling piece in there. The other piece is really around mindset. So many of these organizations, more traditional finance organizations, you have small groups of homogenous people 
at the top of an organization who are making the strategic choices. That's not going to work in this with this topic, because quite often there's many different perspectives. There's lots of unintended consequences to think about. Um, it's very easy to slip into siloed thinking and kind of shift the problem somewhere else. So there's a problem with the, let's say, on the E with environment, with flood risk, you price up mortgages um, in flood zones or price down mortgages in flood zones. And then you end up with a social uh, consideration um, because put really simply, um, the mortgages in the um, flood, flood risk areas are where the poor people live. So you've created an unintended social consequence as a result of a climate action. So there's all these different perspectives to think about. And that mindset shift and having these diverse perspectives is also really important. So I think for me, the gap isn't quite so much on the technical. It's a lot more around the, the people side of this topic. All right. And um, Elba? How do you think we can close this gap then? It is complicated. I mean, obviously there's this uh, upcoming technologies like hydrogen, carbon capture, all of this. Obviously it's high risk. It's a very, very early stage. I read it in one of the, one of the questions as well. So I'm trying to tie the two topics together. I see we're running out of time. So as uh, Valentina said, you know, like um, public and private, um, compromises and investments towards this kind of technologies are what we need. They are they are not uh, profitable right now, but they will be in the future. It's the same way that uh, solar has evolved. So for example, investing now in solar or in energy efficiency measures is very profitable and very medium low risk. So for example, there's all of this type of technologies which can really accelerate this energy transition and can make the situation uh, easier for all of us. So that's why um, this high risk technologies which we need should be, should be invested in by public and private uh, organizations who can actually bear that risk. So for example, there's um, uh, breakthrough energy who are investing in all of these kind of projects and Microsoft is doing a lot in that area as well. So these big organizations who can actually allow themselves to bear the risk should move towards these high risk areas where, uh, while the others should focus on the existing technologies which are more profitable for now and are, are not um, putting us in a situation where we have to aim for high risk. So it is a way of really... Um, just acting at the same time with all of this um all of the all of these topics so it's a way of distributing the investment so that we can we can move towards a more sustainable economy <laughs>